0: Good afternoon, church. Good to be here together for sure. That is for sure. Um, if you would, could you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 42 and look through first uh, verse 47 today. So Acts chapter 2. I've given this title of this section um, uh, for, for my study is Our Normal Church Life. Our normal church life. That, that's all I got. It's not extraordinary. It's not supernatural. There is supernatural stuff that goes on, for sure, through God and His Holy Spirit. But just our normal church life, what does that look like? What does it mean? And I've subtitled this withness, Witness aids our witness. Witness aids our witness. Today we're going to be considering the four essentials of a local church. And these are not all-inclusive, but it would do us well to consider how is all we do as a church. How is it what we do built on these four essentials that we're going to look at today? For it is from these four essentials that we grow and mature as a church. We need to lay out a, a couple of guidelines in our journey through this passage together, though. Number one, these four essentials, are not what we're attempting to achieve. That is not the end result. They are a means to an end. We could say that they are means of grace that God uses. And second, because they are means to an end, we need to understand our intent in learning these essentials has a result of growth and maturity. And third, our ultimate goal as a church is to worship and glorify our God. So, God gives us, These four means of His grace to move us to growth and maturity in order that our life as a church brings Him praise and glory. Let's go ahead and start reading in Acts 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the Apostles. Heavenly Father, this is is your written word. Make your word known through our time together, Lord. Teach us today this, a key ingredient that many of us miss out on today. Too many of us have relegated our Christianity to a personal experience. We have committed to a private faith rather than the faith. We have made our sanctification our own thing rather than commending it to something beyond ourselves. This life that you've given us, our eternal life, this, this life abundant is not meant to be kept isolated but to be shared. Not to, be, not to hoard the good things you have provided but to sacrificially participate in the local church. You're forming a people unto yourself in and through those of us who call Summit Bible Church our home and our family. Amen. So let's get into it. Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Those first few words, and they devoted themselves. I'm going to camp out just for a little bit, okay, more than a little bit on those few words. Um, There are three principles that I want to consider here. Two of them, the first two will answer the who they are. And the third will answer the how, as we look at the word devoted, they we need to first and foremost know who the they are and what they're devoting themselves to, which we'll look at later, to the apostles' teachings, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayer. This is important because the they is the basis for a solid, God-honoring, God-glorifying church. So who is they? They are a redeemed community. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to write that phrase down because it's going to come up a lot today. Redeemed community. Redeemed community. Look back just a verse before, Acts 2.41. So those who received his word, this is Peter's word after a a sermon, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The church must be a redeemed community. The first principle under consideration is that the church is redeemed. I'm going to break that phrase down. So we're going to look at the word redeemed. If you're here and not saved, we're glad that you're here. Certainly, we're glad that you're here and we'll welcome you, for sure. But our hope and prayer is that the gospel does a work today in your heart and in your mind. But realize this, that you are not a part of the redeemed community. You're, you do not belong to the church. But realize this, you are not a part of the redeemed community but to be, because to belong, to be a part of the body, to be a member of this family, to be a part of this local church community, You must be redeemed. To put it another way, you must be born again. Earlier in Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost taking place in Jerusalem. Many people from distant lands have gathered here to celebrate the holiday. And the Apostle Peter offers a sermon to some of those in Jerusalem that day. So let's read back just a few verses earlier, verses 22 to 24 of Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, this is Peter speaking. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, "Hear these words. I have something really important to tell you right now. You know Jesus of Nazareth and what he did during his life, his mighty works and his wonders and his signs." Peter's concern at this time was not to be the popular teacher of the day because that because right away he says, "This Jesus you crucified. This Jesus you killed." He did not hold back any punches with them. And then in Acts 2.24, it was not possible for Jesus to be held in the grip of death. God raised him up from the dead. With Peter's sermon, he makes it clear there is consequence to sin. And that consequence is death. But death could not hold Jesus down, for he is risen. That is not just an Easter message, that is the gospel message. He told all those in earshot that day, you were wrong about Jesus. You crucified him, but by his resurrection, God has proven that he is, in fact, Lord and Savior. And the result, about 3,000 people were saved that day. 3,000 people were redeemed. That's amazing. Okay, you say, I I get it. I've, I've got to be redeemed to be a part of this church, a part of this fellowship, a part of this body. What does that mean? It means they responded to the gospel. God is holy and just and cannot look at sin. You and I are sinners from the get-go. We sin because it's our nature to choose sin. Christ, God incarnate, came and lived, died and rose from the grave, so that by his sacrifice and resurrection, we are saved. And those who would believe this message and maintain a living trust in their master, Jesus Christ, are part of the redeemed. Turn over to Romans chapter 12, if you will. The redeemed are saved, not only from eternal separation from a holy God, but they are also saved to a life that is glorifying to their heavenly Father. Romans chapter 12. We're just going to look at the first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may, may, may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The redeemed are saved, but they're also being saved, in that God is sanctifying them. Jesus is building his church, not with just any people, but with his people a people that are distinct, they are holy. They are different. They are not conformed to this world. We are a people who are presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Christian, sin is no longer our master. We have a new nature. The old nature is dead and gone. And in this new life, we live in holiness and pursue our God in all we are, in deed, in action, and how we think. Church, we are being transformed. Our first principle, then, is that the church is made up of those who are redeemed. The second principle, this redeemed community is a community. In Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves. The they are them, not me, not you, not I, not he, not she, but they. I had to say that a lot of times in practice to get it right. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized. Those, not an individual, but those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Your salvation is a personal experience that has corporate effects. Jesus came to make a people for himself. A redeemed community that would submit to him. A people that would glorify their father in heaven. And thus be an example to the watching world. It is a church that is our focus today. And it's not just the individual who has been redeemed. After Pentecost was over. Some of these 3,000 would stay in Jerusalem and begin community together. They began the local church. To be sure, individual believers make up the church, but what happens here in Acts is not done in silos. It is not done simply by an individual. It is done by the redeemed community. Have you ever asked yourself, what is church? I bet you if I asked and had people come up and share, we'd probably get... 15 different answers from 12 different people. <laughs> Why do we say we go to church on Sundays? This idea, it skews what church is. I'm going to challenge you with the idea of church and the way you think of church. The church is not this auditorium that we meet in. The church is organic. The church is a combination of every single believer committed to this local body of believers. The church is not a place that we go to. It is a redeemed community that we are bound to and partnered with in ministry. Our church is a community that Christ has been building for the past 10 years at Summit Bible Church. Today we often speak of my faith, right? This is what I believe. But the Bible speaks far more often of the work God is doing in our salvation. He is making a people, a community for himself In the Old Testament, God regularly regularly interacts with the nation of Israel, not simply a single Israelite. And in the New Testament, as we read Acts, as we read the epistles, so much of the time, those New Testament scriptures are referencing the local community of believers, not simply a singled-out Christian. We have neglected the faith and we have neglected the community of the redeemed because we've personalized and internalized our Christianity For far too long, a Christian is one who is part of a local redeemed community. There are so many nowadays that jump from church to church to church looking for something new, perhaps looking for something old, something that they once had. There's a half hearted commitment to the local church today. People don't become members because they don't want to feel tied down or they don't want the accountability. We need to realize that the people in this auditorium are not just a group of people. This local church is your family. And they need you. And you need them. So that they has been answered. They are redeemed, saved through faith alone, by grace alone and Christ alone. And they are a community that God is growing and maturing as we partner together to build his redeemed community. Our third principle, devoted. Devoted. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves. This word devoted is the hinge on which we as a church must be committed to in order to reach our destination. This is what devoted means. Given over to. Hold fast to something. To continue or persevere in something. It is a continual steadfastness. It is to be earnest. It is to be constantly diligent. It is to adhere closely to. Dog breeders, they're devoted typically to one specific type of dog, right? Cookbooks, what are they devoted to? Recipes. Fans are devoted to their favorite sports team. And I know some of you get loud in your devotion to your team. When we have a hobby that requires our time, our attention, our devotion, we have no problem, no problem whatsoever committing and dedicating ourselves to that hobby. Here in Acts 2, they were not going to the Colosseum to watch a sporting match. They were not gathering together to go shopping for the latest Roman sandals at Caesar's Palace. They devoted, they they persevered, the redeemed community was constantly diligent. This local church was faithful and adhered closely to. To what? The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. Not just one or two of these activities, but all four of them church, I ask us all, where is our devotion as a redeemed community of believers in Jesus? So let's look at the what. What is this redeemed community devoted to? We will consider the four means of grace God is using to grow and mature his church for his glory. What was the early church involved in and what must we today be involved in? These spiritual disciplines were not and are not optional, neither then nor now. God doesn't put us on an automatic fast track of maturity once we get saved. As a Christian, we actively, we intentionally pursue growth. And here's the key. We do this together as part of our redeemed community. Know this, church, that God is the source of our transforming. His spirit impacts the redeemed community by using these spiritual practices. He performs our sanctification process through means of grace to bring about our growth and maturity for his glory. Are these four practices of the redeemed community all-inclusive? That is, hey, church, just do these four things and you're good. You're good. Is that what's intended? No, of course not. Are there other things our church ought to be devoted to? Certainly. Do these four fundamental practices guarantee a healthy church? If not done by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, then the answer is no. If not done by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, Then all this is simply man's attempt to appease God, to subside his wrath and get on his good side. These four means of grace God uses to grow our redeemed community for his glory, they should be a way of whole church life. They should be built into the DNA of our Sundays, of our ministries, of our discipleship, of our times together, and the love that we have for one another. Looking at 2 Peter 3.18, did you know God intended for you and I to grow? not stagnate, not plateau. Peter warns not an individual but a church here when he says in verse 17, he uses the term beloved and warns them not to be pulled away from truth by those who would twist scripture. And then in verse 18 he says, but rather grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. By this Peter pleads with them and us to grow and mature in God's grace and our knowledge of Christ all for his glory. So as we work through these four essential pieces of the church that makes us distinct from the world, consider these questions. Are these four characteristics prominent in our church? Is this what you and I as individuals promote as members of this church? And what can you and I do to solidify these four essentials so they're fundamental supports to our redeemed community? So what are we to be about as a redeemed community? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first devotion of the church, the apostles' teaching. This was not the local book club gathering together to discuss Plato's writings. They gathered together and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And it's not just any teaching. They were not devoting themselves around the latest and greatest pastor of the day. We're all well aware of leaders and their so-called churches today. They seem to have very little to do with the apostles' teaching. Recent survey that I, that I came across, the number one thing found to be lacking in churches today, and this survey was done across multiple denominations, the number one thing that was lacking in churches today, there is a famine of hearing the word of God. But for the redeemed community, it is apostolic teaching that we must be devoted to. This is the first aspect of a healthy, vibrant Jesus-building church. It is a redeemed community that is fed the Bible. So is the apostle's teaching really that important, Tim? 2 Thessalonians 2:15. This is what Paul has to say. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast. Okay, Paul, we will, we'll stand firm and hold fast, but to what, Paul? He goes on to say to the teachings that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And then in Jude chapter 1 verse 3, we find this appeal. Beloved Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith what faith the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints Jude wanted so badly to write to them about their common salvation but because of the false teaching going around he found it necessary to appeal to them to contend for the faith for this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints truth given by apostolic teaching. We need to understand the seriousness of what we're devoting ourselves to. When the church stops teaching what the apostles taught, it stops being a church, plain and simple. In Colossians 2, 6, Paul is so concerned, he encourages the Colossian church to do this. Again, the Colossian church, not just an individual. He says in verse 6, walk in Christ. In verse 7, just as you were taught. And then in verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The day we move away from apostolic teaching, it is the day you have an obligation to leave this church because it is no longer a church. I might ask Luke who wrote Acts, why mention the apostles' teaching and not simply teaching? I mean, we'd probably assume what you meant, Luke, right? To which he might reply, oh, dear Christian, we must be bent on and fully and faithfully adhering ever so closely to not just any teaching, but apostle, authoritative, biblical teaching. Because any other teaching will be our downfall as a community of the redeemed. If we stray from such teachings, Paul warns Timothy, and he warns us today in verses 3 and 4 of Second Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. To be sure, the Apostles' teaching is important. And if important, should we not know what the message is of the Apostles' teaching? John 17:3, and this is eternal life. Your ears should have just perked up. I want to know what eternal life is. John's going to tell us. Here it is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do you come to know the only true God and Jesus Christ? It's not by osmosis, it's from a committed, ongoing, relentless pursuit of the Apostles' teaching. 1 Corinthians 2 2 through 5. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The goal of devoting ourselves to the Apostles' teaching is not simply to gain information, as critically important as that is, but to know God and to know Christ crucified. This is the message of the Apostles' teaching to know the only true God and Christ crucified. The study of the Apostles' teaching is for every, each, and every Christian. Not just for church leaders, not just for Bible study teachers. The redeemed community must be devoted to the apostles' teaching. What does it do for the redeemed community? John eight thirty one and 32. We all know John eight thirty two, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Exactly. But let me read verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, Jesus says, Jesus, whose words were and are authoritative. If you continue in my word, if you do not depart, if you continue to be present in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You are demonstrating to be a Jesus follower, a Christian, if you abide in his word. In Acts 2, the gospel was preached by Peter that day, and some were born again, some were redeemed. And with this new life, the 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 redeemed community of God had a hunger and thirst for the apostles' teaching. Where is our devotion, church? Is it on this? Do we have a thirst and hunger for the things of God? It is not simply knowing about God. It is not simply a knowledge of God's word. Are you devoting yourself to these truths? Are you ingesting these truths, or do you come on a sunny afternoon, perhaps saying, "I've heard this before. I've been down this road before." Consider this with that thinking. It's like going to In-N-Out for lunch. Who doesn't like In-N-Out, right? Let's say you're invited to grab a burger and, and some fries with a friend. Someone who would invite you to In-N-Out, for to, you want to keep them around because they should be a friend for life. So you're invited, but, but here, who would, who would say this? Who would say this, though, if you are invited? I've had a burger before. I know what it tastes like. I don't need to eat it again are you kidding me? It's actually because you've done it before that you want it all the more. This is how it is with the things of God. We don't just look at the Bible teachings and say, I've heard this before. We listen, we invest, we ingest the authoritative apostolic teaching. We abide in and we apply God's written word to our lives. And it's through the apostles' teaching that the redeemed community learn of God's character, his great deeds, his love for us, his will for us, his ways, his promises, and so much more. The Holy Spirit uses these truths as a major part of the process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ. So to summarize, the apostles' teaching is important to the redeemed community. The apostles' teaching has this message to know the only true God in Christ crucified. And the apostles' teaching number three gives us a passion and a hunger for God's word. The second aspect, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to fellowship. The redeemed community secondly devoted themselves to fellowship. Another evidence to a healthy, God-fearing, Bible-believing church is that continually and earnestly holds closely to fellowship. This is a second means of grace God is using to grow and mature His His, his church for his glory. This fellowship is not singular. It is not personal. It's not private. It's not just for those of us that are extroverts. It is what the church did in Acts. It is what any healthy, Bible-believing, redeemed community does today. There is a devotion. There is a dedication. But it's not just for you, Christian. It's for you, church. This is not speaking to any single person, but to the local church as a body of Christ. There must be a continual steadfastness to the fellowship. What is this fellowship that we're to be devoted to? It's the term koinonia. means association, communion, close relationship. But what does it look like? Maybe we talk about what it doesn't look like. If the youth get together and have a swim party, that's not fellowship. If the women get together and play cards together, that is not fellowship. If the guys get together and play softball, that is not fellowship. And as seen in our not-so-distant past, that men's activity is actually a fast track to a hospital visit, and I'll leave it at that. There's nothing inherently wrong with these gatherings, but we can't call them fellowship. There's an individual aspect to our faith, to our Christianity. I know I've been stressing the church today. I'm in no way denying that we have to own our personal decision to follow Christ. But our passage today leans on the church. And for far too long, we have privatized our life as Christians. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. If you think this through, how can a solo Christian fellowship how can I as a Christian belong to a family I do not see, that I do not spend time with, that I do not share life with? Consider the, re, the, the words of the Hebrew writer, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Meet together, those are two words of the Greek that could be translated like this our own religious assembly of Christians. We're being instructed not to neglect our own religious assembly of Christians. Maybe, maybe you've come across someone, and I'm speaking maybe even before COVID hit, who believes they can sit at home and watch Sunday service on a TV or online. I spoke with a friend of mine recently, and she was really concerned for herself and her family becoming church complacent because of COVID. To be sure, they were watching their church's online service most every Sunday, but a complacency had set in. And not with just their attention to Sunday services, the things of God were being neglected individually and, as, and, and, and with their whole family. There's a lack of spiritual, there's a lack, there's a spiritual distancing, and she knows it's present. And I could hear the hurt in her voice over it. Fellowship is one of those four means of grace that God uses to create a healthy, Bible-loving, God-loving, people-loving, redeemed community. This is one of the essentials that we need to build and maintain community. We should be well aware that this fellowship is interconnected to the first point the apostles' teaching. We cannot take any of these four means that God uses to grow and mature as church and attempt to separate them from one another. Each are necessary, but each are dependent upon one another. There's a corporate aspect of fellowship we cannot get around. Acts 2.42 states the redeemed community will devote themselves to fellowship. The church of Acts, as well as today, is a church of fellowship. We are partnering with each other to mature God's church and further the gospel. A Bible-believing, Christ-centered community will devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. Fellowship begins at our corporate gatherings and then makes its way into the rest of our lives. This apostle-based teaching fellowship is an active participation in the redeemed community through the sharing of one's life and one's resources. Just a couple of verses down from where we started in Acts 2.42, look at verse 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In the church there were those who had plenty and those who had little. And people wanted to help people. Not because they are philanthropists, but because they were, rede- they were a redeemed community devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. The church shared their material, ble- material blessings with one another. The koinonia of the redeemed community will naturally express itself in the sharing of resources. And this fellowship, this common partnership, is most obviously seen being worked out in the one another's we find throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 13, 16 Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Back over in Romans 12, 10 through 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is a redeemed community fellowship at its best. We love one another how with brotherly affection. We love one another how by outdoing one another and showing honor. The Lord has served how together with intensity. We rejoice in hope together. We are patient in tribulation together. We are in constant prayer together. We contribute to the needs of one another together. We show hospitality together. This is a church-wide, community-driven directive. Church was not intended to be done in isolation. A mutual ministry takes place when we interact and take part in one another's lives, when we meet regularly together to worship and glorify our Father in heaven. If you come and sit on a Sunday, if you come and sit isolated, indifferent, uninvolved, then God's church, our church, will not be built Jesus' way. In this type of fellowship, we learn how to love and serve others and allow others to love and serve. And in the process, we discover that God meets us and ministers to us, not through some mystical experience, but rather through one another. To summarize this fellowship, it is this, a Bible-based common partnership in which we actively love and minister to each other. The third, they devoted themselves, Acts 2.42, to the breaking of bread. Should we practice it together? It's my first point. Turn to Coloss- uh, 1 Corinthians 11, that's a common spot that we go to when we talk about the Lord's Supper. We typically turn to it right away because that's, that's, that's where we go to, right? But the chapter before, even in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, let me just throw this out. Paul has this to say, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We participate in the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives us instruction in our participation in this meal. And he is directing his statements to the church of Corinth. The assumption is both in 1 Corinthians 11 and in Acts 2 is this. God's local redeemed community is breaking bread together. It is important to understand that we take the elements together as a local church. There is no room for an interpretation of the Lord's Supper happening in isolation. There is no room for interpretation that this is happening around a dinner table with just your family. 1 Corinthians 11:17. 17, Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church for this meal. And this is what he states in verse 17. When you come together, jump down to verse 18. When you come together as a church, verse 20, when you come together, verse 33, when you come together, I'm hoping you see a pattern here. There's a premise that is of utmost importance that we partake of the Lord's Supper together. My second point who is qualified to partake in the Lord's Supper? Understand first, it is for the redeemed community. This has been our battle cry for each of these means of grace God is using to grow and mature his church for his glory. So not everyone who walks to the door should participate in this meal, but only those who have been redeemed. The second aspect, I want to establish, if you will, a subgroup of the redeemed community. They're not special. They don't have special knowledge or privilege. They haven't hit tenure as a Christian. The group hasn't put in so many hours in ministry or given more than others. But Paul chastises the Corinthian church with these remarks in verses 18 and 20. 18 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 11. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Wow. Clearly, this is not the Lord's Supper that you eat when there is so much evidence of division among you, when there is factions among you. So, the reverse could be stated this way. We come together because this meal represents unity in Christ. That is, we are saved. And when we come together because this meal represents unity also with the church. That is, we're in good standing with one another. So, Paul urges us in verse 27 and 28 of the same chapter whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup realize Paul is writing to the redeemed community of Corinth yet even among the redeemed there is a possibility of taking the meal in an unworthy manner and the result you and I could be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord church we've got to ask ourselves have I will I in a few moments when we do take communion together eat the bread will I eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner in preparation, we should, we should restore our unity with Christ, first and foremost. In preparation, we must take time to examine ourselves, confess and repent of our sins before God. Psalm 139, 23 to 24, make this your prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting in preparation, we should also restore our unity not only with Christ but with one another as well. Matthew five twenty three to 24 So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave it there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. If you caught Thursday's email, we were encouraged in preparation for the Lord's Supper, quote, to carry out your pledged obligations of fellowship and unity within our church what broken relationships do we need to reconcile church those that would choose to take this meal when they knowingly are harboring sin when there is discord when there is conflict this needs to be resolved church if this is you i would encourage you i would encourage you not to take the elements later this does not mean that you are not a part of the redeemed community it means you have unsettled sin that needs to be dealt with. It means you have a broken relationship with another. It means your fellowship with another is damaged and needs cementing. Understand, what it ultimately means is this. You are taking seriously God's word and therefore refuse to take part in the Lord's Supper. But I plead with you for God's glory, for church unity, for the witness of the church, the onlooking world, get right. Get right with God. Get, r- get right with, uh, uh, with the other. All for church unity. Right? Get right with the person you need to reconcile with. To summarize the Lord's Supper, we take this meal together as a redeemed community. And number two, it is for the redeemed who are in good standing with the redeemed community. My last point, the prayers. The fourth devotion of the church. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. A praying church is a well-balanced church. Do we not tend to view our prayer life in terms of what we do as individuals, though? We do that. I pray in the car when I'm alone. I pray when I spend some solitary time with God. I pray before I fall asleep or I pray when I wake up. I pray throughout my day. To be sure this type of prayer is needed, it should be a personal Christian discipline of yours and mine. Perhaps we pray with another. We pray for one another, and rightly we should. But here in our passage today, there's no room for a single individual praying on their own because this means of grace that God uses to grow, mature, redeemed community is that we pray corporately. We don't take time throughout our service on any given Sunday to pray because it's part of a liturgy. But because prayer is a vital aspect of the life of our redeemed community. Thomas often begins our service with prayer. We give time for public scripture reading and prayer. We open and close our sermons with prayer. We give time to corporate prayer. By this prayer is being modeled. By this prayer, it is being understood to be more than just a wish list, or personal request. And by this prayer, prayer is being emphasized. And by this, our prayer is unified as we are in agreement as a redeemed community. We pray because our trust, our dependence, rest on our God and Savior. In Ephesians three fourteen to 21, listen to Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with, the full, with all the fullness of God. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we, uh, all we ask or think, according to the power that work within us, verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Beautiful prayer, and note, this prayer again was for the local community, the redeemed community. This is the fourth means of grace that God uses to grow and build his church for his glory. Quickly, I just want to touch on some results, three results, if we look at 42, uh, 42 through 47, or 43 to 47, When a redeemed community takes seriously the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayers, what happens? Five impactful words. Our witness aids our witness. Let that phrase sit with you for a moment. Our witness aids our witness. And the three impactful results are these. Number one, people were in awe in verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. People looked upon the church and what they were doing. Differences were put aside. Diversity was put aside. They were living in unity with one another. They sacrificed for one another. And the onlooking world was simply in awe. None of this could be explained by human reason. The second, verse 47, people were in favor. The church had favor with all the people. Society looked at the church as being in good repute. A redeemed community practices the Christianity outside of Sunday. May our Christianity bleed over to our lives outside of this redeemed community. Number three, people came to faith, verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So as a result of the witness of the church, the church reaches inward, and they get along. They love each other. They sacrifice for each other. Then the church reaches outward showing love to a neighbor and co-worker, friend, and this drew others in. God uses the redeemed community to win souls for the kingdom. Often we talk about when we go out and evangelize, we do that on our own, right, by ourselves or maybe with another. But here, God is trying to demonstrate that his church, him building his church, is part of the plan to bring people into the fold. Our witness. is promotes our witness to the, redeemed commu- of, to the redeemed community and to the community outside. John MacArthur put it this way, when the contents of the community is right, the character of the community is right. So I ask again, as I did before, consider these four means of grace that God uses to grow and mature his church for his glory. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Are these prominent in our church? Is this what you and I as individuals promote in our church? What can you and I do to solidify these so they are fundamental supports for our redeemed community? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in our devotion to your word, there are times we we neglect it or, or perhaps make little of it. For this, we repent and ask for forgiveness. As you confront us with this truth, Lord, Help us to be ready to repent and trust you. Repent of any sin in our lives and trust you as sovereign. You have our best in mind and you love us. Lord, in our fellowship, help us to take seriously our unity as a church. When you redeemed us, you bound us into fellowship, into partnership, into a love for one another. Unity occurs when we, in your grace and direction, resolve to sacrifice and love the community you have placed us in. Lord, our prayer is for Christ to be shown in our redeemed community. And Lord, help us to value and understand the gravity of our time we set aside to take communion together. This is not a spiritual habit. It is a spiritual discipline that compels us to take a hard look at sin in our life. It provides an awareness of the unity or lack of unity in our community. It is a means of grace that you provide so that we can make right any wrongs. It's a means of grace you use to confront us with the extent that you went to in order to reconcile yourself to... reconcile us to you through the suffering and death of your son and lastly lord we are grateful for prayer it's a chance to share our hearts with you it's a freedom each of your children have to come to your throne to admire you to ask to plead to praise to thank to confess lord our corporate prayers are not a custom or a routine may we never see them as such but allow us to see them as our community in unity praying and longing for the same things together we pray that all this redeemed community does at summit bible church that we would say believe and think everything we say believe and think that it would be done in praise and honor and glory for you and you alone in christ's name amen